Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. Today's headline is Missing Man Case Baffles Officials by Grace Neeland, Dateline, Platteville, Wisconsin. Newly released documents have outlined the last known movements of a man missing from rural Platteville as friends and family members continue to search for answers two months after his baffling disappearance. Ronald Henry, 34, went missing on December 5th. Local authorities in the two months since have searched thousands of acres and conducted dozens of interviews, but have yet to determine what caused the disappearance. I think we're all kind of in agreement that someone knows something and they're not talking or we haven't reached the right person yet who will, said Grant County Sheriff Nate Dreckman. This is something that in my 28 years I don't recall ever dealing with. The last known contact from Henry was a voicemail he left at about noon, December 5th, with the man who owned the home at which he was staying, James Jim Daly. Hey Jim, it's Ronald. Give me a call back as soon as possible. Thank you, the voicemail says. The Telegraph Herald obtained the four-second message and related documents through an open records request filed with the Sheriff's Department. The message's timing is significant as it was left several hours after anyone has reported last seeing Henry. Henry was last seen in the early hours of December 5th at Daly's home in rural Platteville, where Henry was staying to do some work for extra cash. Henry had lived and worked in Platteville previously for several years and had stayed with the Daly's before. Jim Daly told the Telegraph Herald that he, Henry, and his nephew Tyler Daly spent December 4th watching football before Tyler and Ronald left at about 6 p.m. to go to a party. Jim Daly said Henry was in good spirits and that nothing seemed out of the ordinary before they left. Tyler Daly told detectives that he and Henry drank at the party and that Henry was very intoxicated when they returned later that night. Daly said he then went to bed, while Henry went to the living room to sleep on the couch. Tyler Daly said Henry entered his room at about 3.30 a.m. December 5th to say there were some dogs crying outside that needed help and asked Daly to go with him to help. Tyler said he told Ronald to get out of his room and let him sleep because he had to go to work in a few hours. Tyler stated that Ronald scoffed out of the room and that was the last time he saw or heard from him, according to a report from the Sheriff's Department. When Jim Daly woke up at about 7.30 a.m. December 5th, he noticed the front door was open and that Henry was gone. He told the Telegraph Herald that he thought that was odd, but that it wasn't the first time he had found the door open, as the latch didn't always work. Ronald had stayed with me before, years ago, when he was younger, and it was, wasn't that unusual that he'd meet up with someone in the night and take off to do or go someplace or other, Daly said. Daly said he started getting concerned when he couldn't get in touch with Henry after receiving the voicemail that afternoon and asked his nephew, who said he believed Henry had left to go meet a woman in Platteville. Jim Daly asked his nephew on December 6th to try to get in touch with Henry to be sure, but Tyler Daly could not reach Jim. Excuse me, reach him. 
Jim Daly, said Tyler, then tried to reach the woman he believed Henry went to see, who told Tyler that Henry never showed up. Jim Daly reported Henry missing on December 7th, as did Henry's girlfriend, Alicia Bennett, who hadn't heard from him since December 4th. Bennett told officers that Henry didn't have any history of drug use or self-harm, although he was known to drink heavily on occasion. Those reports were the catalyst for the two-month-long search that included ground and aerial searches of nearly 3,000 acres using ground and canine officers, drones, and a helicopter. The Sheriff's Department also has conducted more than 50 interviews and gained access to Henry's social media accounts. Despite those efforts, officers have yet to determine what happened to Henry or find any additional items that would point to his whereabouts. Henry's cell phone last pinged at about 8.20 p.m. December 6th near where he was staying, although a search of the area did not find the device or any of Henry's belongings. It's baffling, Drackman said, and it's frustrating because we thought that with people on the ground, boots on the ground, for those big searches, that something would turn up and nothing has. Henry's family similarly has been frustrated by the lack of progress and is working to collect the funds to hire a private investigator, said Henry's younger sister, Titania Henry. She said the family hopes to find some closure after having several holidays and birthdays pass in the shadow of her brother's disappearance. We just want him home, Titania Henry said. Like if he's gone, Dad, we still need him home so we can give him a proper home going, you know. And if he's alive but something is wrong, we still want him home so he can get whatever help he needs. If you see something, call a detective. If you know something, call a detective, she said to those living in the Platteville area. It doesn't matter at this point what it is. I just want my brother back. The investigation remains open and active, Dreckman said. Anyone with information about the case should call the Sheriff's Department at 608-723-2157 or anonymously submit a tip through the Grant County Crime Stoppers at 800-789-6600. The next story is New Middle School Planning Continues by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dubuque Community School Board members on Monday again discussed a plan to construct a new school at the site of Washington Middle School as part of the district's consolidation efforts, along with additional information about the next steps for approving such a move. School board members in April approved a goal to consolidate the district's middle schools from three to two by no later than the fall of 2026 which would result in an annual reduction of approximately $3.4 million from the district's operating budget. Last week, a task force recommended the district construct a new middle school to serve 1,200 to 1,250 students at the Washington site, which would be expanded by acquiring several nearby residential properties. Property costs are estimated at $110 million to $120 million dollars plus land acquisition costs. Change and growth is difficult, and I'm not one that always likes it myself, but it's something we need to consider, said school board member Tammy Ryan on Monday. We know the cost savings that come with this. Task force officials propose 
constructing a 225,000-square-foot facility on the current athletic field at Washington and demolishing the current school. The district would need to acquire five nearby residential properties on 2.8 acres to the west of the school, which would become parking spaces. The school's new athletic field would sit on a footprint of the current school, and a bus lane would separate the school and field. Laura Peterson, educational planner with Envision Architecture, said the new layout significantly improves traffic circulation at the site where buses and parent traffic currently are commingled. She also noted that the task force considered renovating and building an addition to Washington rather than constructing a new school, but felt that such a project would limit the district architecturally and create logistical problems. The idea of trying to renovate and keep kids in school was a longer duration and really a messy project, she said. School board members emphasized that the district is pursuing consolidation due to the need to operate efficiently amid lower-than-desired increases in state aid. Last week, Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a 3% increase in supplemental state aid to public schools, a number that school district officials across the state including in Dubuque Community Schools, said was insufficient to keep up with inflation. I want the community to clearly understand we would not be looking at this level of change were it not for the need to find efficiencies, said Dubuque Community School Board member Nancy Bradley. In the world of efficiencies in a school system, it falls into facilities and operations or people and programs. And as we look to not reduce people and programs, we look to increase our efficiencies through this kind of a move. Board member Anderson Sanichi said he feels the district will be able to use funds saved by consolidating to focus on providing quality education. With the savings, we have some opportunities to be more creative with how we educate students in the future, he said. Ryan noted that a reduction to two middle schools will let the district develop feeder schools to Dubuque Senior and Hempstead High Schools and better balance the demographics in student population among the middle schools. It's not like we are just going to just be combining the students from Jefferson and the students from Washington, she said. The whole middle school population is going to be realigned. Bradley asked whether an increase in busing or other transportation costs as a result of the realignment might cut into the annual savings that the district expects to see. Peterson said the study does not currently include that data, but district and Envision staff will research it and other financial details of the proposed move and bring that information to the board before a vote is taken. Peterson also presented a timeline with next steps for the district, which would begin with developing conceptual renderings and finalizing financial aspects of the project. Tim Oswald, Managing Director at Piper Sandler Companies, suggested last week that the district could finance the project with $32.6 million from the Securing an Advanced Vision for Education Fund, as well as General Obligation Bond of one $101.3 million. After project details are set, Peterson said the district will want to host informational sessions before approving bond language at a future board meeting. A petition then must be signed by 25% of the number of people who voted in the last election of school officials 
in order for the district to call for a special election. The first time that district officials could put a bond issue on the ballot would be in September, and it would require approval from 60% of voters to pass. Superintendent Amy Hawkins said after the meeting that district officials hope to bring recommendations for the financial aspects of the project to the March meeting of the Board's Facilities and Support Services Committee. Now we'll turn to the BizBuzz column, and the headline is Thompson Keeps on Trucking by Kaylee Reese. A full-service truck dealership has moved to its new, larger facility in Dubuque. Thompson Truck and Trailer now is located in a 29,500-square-foot facility at 6800 South Boulder Brook Court. A small amount of work on the more than $7 million project was done in the fall of 2021, with work ramping up in earnest last year. It's a lot easier to see us now from the highway, said General Manager Joe Hoffman. We've been getting a lot of customers here locally and off the road already. The phone hasn't really stopped ringing since we started. It's exciting. Thompson Truck and Trailer previously was located at 1190 Roosevelt Street, Extension. Nancy Can, managing broker for DBQ Property Group, said she is working with a buyer on that location, but the exact use for the property has not yet been determined. The new Thompson Truck and Trailer facility increased the number of truck bays from 12 to 16, including eight drive through bays for larger trucks. Hoffman said employees now have more room to work, including for trailer repairs. This new building is a lot nicer for the drivers, he added. Our driver's lounge is the coolest in the building. It's pretty awesome to see customers going by all day. The larger facility also will allow the truck dealership to increase its staff. Hoffman said Thompson Truck and Trailer currently employs about 22 to 25 people in Dubuque, and he hopes to increase that number to 28 to 30 people by the end of the year, including adding three to five technicians and finding someone to manage online sales of parts. Thompson Truck and Trailer in Dubuque can be reached at 563-278-2469. Next is... Clayton County Funeral Homes Get New Owner and Name Two Clayton County Funeral Home locations are operating under a new name and owner. Tukey Allen Funeral Home is now Morris Funeral Home after Brock Morris took over ownership on February 1st from Bill Allen. Morris Funeral Home has locations in Guttenberg and Garnavillo. I'm just very fortunate for the opportunity, Morris said, of running the funeral homes. It's a privilege to be able to do this job. I love what I do, and I am honored to serve the communities in Clayton County and beyond. In addition to owning Morris Funeral Home, Morris continues to work at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville, Iowa, splitting his time as needed among the locations. Morris said Allen reached out to him about a year ago to see if he would be interested in taking over ownership of the Guttenberg and Garnavillo Funeral Homes. I worked with Bill for the rest of the year, starting in May, Morris said. I was working intermittently for him when I had time, and I've been working there ever since. Besides the name and ownership change, Morris said operations at the funeral home will remain unchanged. I have some ideas on how to upgrade and improve the facilities, but it will be the same excellent service the community has been used to for 75 years, he said.
The Guttenberg location can be reached at 563-252-1842. And the Garnavilla location can be reached at 563-964-2201. And next is New Villa's latest project for Bellevue Riverfront Resort. A Bellevue Riverfront Resort soon will have villas on its list of amenities. Four villas are under construction at Offshore Hotel and Resort, 4115 North Riverview Street. Property manager Kaylee Belkin said the work started at the end of 2022 and the villas are expected to be open to guests in July. The idea is essentially to bring a new vibe down here that allows for a bit more space, Belkin said. It's for people who maybe are not campers and who can also stay for the weekend beyond a hotel room. The new buildings will be located on the southeast side of the resort near the swimming pond and will offer views of the Mississippi River. Each villa, which is designed as an A-frame cabin, can sleep up to six people and will include a full kitchen. A fire pit and a picnic table will be outside each villa. The villas are the latest project undertaken at the resort since Offshore Enterprises purchased the property in 2020. Since then, Balkan said, the resort's campground has been expanded, an aquatic center with a pond and beach was added, and the restaurant and event center both were redone. The villas have been in the plan since the beginning, Balkan said. The goal over the next few years is to increase the number to 10. Our description of these is that they can be for a family or for an adult's weekend with friends. They can be catered to really anybody, which is nice. Those interested in being added to the wait list for the villas can call the resort. Offshore Resort can be reached at 563-872-5000. Turning to page 2, the Dubuque and Tri-State area page, the title of the Article is Bellevue Woman to Spend Year Ahead Promoting Pollination by Grace Neeland, Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. An area resident will spend the next year drumming up buzz for honeybees and insect pollination after receiving a top title in the beekeeping world. Allison Hager, 22, of Bellevue, was named the 2023 American Honey Princess at the recent American Beekeeping Federation Conference and Trade Show. She will spend the next year promoting the honey industry in schools, farmers' markets, and festivals nationwide. I'm looking forward to reaching as many people as I can this year, Hager said. I love honeybees, and I love talking to people about honeybees, especially those who don't know much about it but want to learn more. Hager has been beekeeping since she was 13 after learning of a state program that helps cover startup costs. She said she was interested in the environmental benefits of beekeeping, and learning the skills that go into maintaining a successful hive. She is currently a senior at Iowa State University, studying business management, but she still tends to several hives in the Bellevue area in collaboration with a local beekeeper. After she graduates in May, she hopes to grow her hives even more. American Honeybee Program Chairperson Anna Kettlewell said it was Hager's breadth of experience and passion that made her well-suited for the national title. Prior to being selected as the American Honey Princess, Hager served as the 2022 Iowa Honey Queen 
Allison has a tremendous knowledge of the beekeeping industry, Kettlewell said. She seemed very excited about the work, which is something that we love to see, and she just expressed a lot of professionalism, which is also something that we were looking for. Local beekeeper Kevin Brunning said he believes Hager will be well-suited for the position after seeing how she performed as the state honey queen, adding that she did particularly well with public speaking. He has been mentoring Hager for about a year. She always asks a lot of questions about the bees, and she always seems very interested, Brunning said. It's been kind of a fun road for me to see her continue to grow and learn more about beekeeping. Hager said she thinks people tend to underestimate the importance of honeybees. She used U.S. Department of Agriculture data to highlight the honeybees that honeybees pollinate about 80% of all flowering plants, including more than 130 types of fruits and vegetables. She noted that in the insects are vital for the pollination of forage plants such as alfalfa and clover that feed livestock too, meaning honeybees have an impact on human food consumption in more ways than one. It's those facts and more that she looks forward to sharing in the year ahead in her new role. Without bees, we'd pretty much be eating fish and corn, Hager said. My goal this year is to explain the importance of beekeeping and just kind of give people more knowledge to embrace that as a job or as a hobby. Turning to the News in Brief column, Trial date set for Jackson County man accused of killing wife. Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. A trial date recently was set for a Bellevue man accused of fatally shooting his wife last year. Christopher E. Pritchard, 57, is charged in Iowa District Court of Jackson County with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery in the death of his wife, Angela Pritchard, 55. He has pleaded not guilty. Pritchard's trial has been set for September 11th at the Jackson County Courthouse. His next court hearing is August 25th. Pritchard is accused of fatally shooting Angela Pritchard, who was found dead from an apparent gunshot wound by authorities on October 8th at the business she operated, Mississippi Ridge Boarding Kennel. Christopher Pritchard later told police that he was angry about a no-contact order against him and that he brought a gun to the kennel to confront his wife about the order and shot her, documents state. Also recently, Judge Tamara Roberts denied Pritchard's motion for a change of venue for his trial on an unrelated first-degree theft charge. Pritchard's attorney, Matthew Bolin, filed the motion in December due to extensive media coverage over the murder case. The nature of the articles about Pritchard's murder charge is predominantly factual and does not sensationalize the crime, but rather just reports the crime. Roberts' order denying the motion states. Further, the articles are objective and state the facts surrounding the incident. They do not make any conclusions about his guilt or innocence. The theft charge stems from an incident in which police said Pritchard, who was employed by Murphy Construction at the time, allegedly made several of his own invoices up and had customers write him checks personally in 2019. The total theft was $36,050, court documents state. Man sentenced to 10 years for lascivious acts with child. A man recently was sentenced to 10 years in prison for committing lascivious acts with a girl younger than 13 in Dubuque. 
Rolando A. Arguello Fragoso, 31, was sentenced in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to a charge of lascivious acts with a child. As part of a plea deal, a charge of second-degree sexual abuse was dismissed, according to the sentencing order from Judge Michael Schubat. Court documents state that police received a report in April of Aguelo Fargoso sexually abusing the girl whom he knew at a Dubuque residence. Arguello Fragoso admitted to the incident during an interview with police in May. Rolando showed emotion, and it was indicated he knew what he did was wrong, documents state. Rolando was confronted about the accusations that the girl had reported. Rolando indicated the girl would not lie. Next is special election to be held today in Piasta. Dateline, Piasta, Iowa. A special election will be held today in Piasta to fill a city council vacancy. Eric Osterman, Brian Schatz, and Wesley Wedewer are running to fill the remaining term of Doug Hughes, who resigned his seat last year. The winner will serve on the city council until the end of the year and will need to run for the seat again in the November election if he wishes to continue on the city council. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. at Piasta Community Center, and all absentee ballots must be received by 8 p.m. to be counted. Results will be posted on telegraphherald.com tonight and shared in Wednesday's edition of the Telegraph Herald. And the police report? The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported Soraya E. Rue, 20, an inmate of the State Correctional Facility at 1494 Elm Street, was arrested at 8.28 p.m. Sunday at the facility on a charge of assault. Jason A. Maurice, 37, a resident of the Hillcrest Family Services Residential Facility at 1160 Siple Road, was arrested at 1.54 p.m. at Dubuque County Jail on a charge of assault causing injury and criminal damage to a vehicle totaling $500 was reported at 11.42 a.m. Saturday in the 600 block of Lincoln Avenue. Turning to the opinion page, there's a letter from the editor titled Daily Obits Email, a new feature for subscribers by Amy Gilligan the Telegraph-Herald Executive Editor. Subscribers have likely noticed a new email dropping into their inbox each morning, listing all the day's obituaries in the Telegraph-Herald. The newsletter is a new subscriber feature we have started, and the clicks indicate readers really like it. The daily email comes at 7 a.m. each day and lists the names of each person in that day's obituaries. Subscribers can click on the name to see the full obituary. I have come to find it really useful to give a quick scan of the names first thing in the morning as I sometimes don't get around to reading the obituaries until later. Our mailing list began with the emails we have on file for subscribers, but in most cases that is just one person associated with the account, even if two or more people in the household read the paper. But we can add anyone to the list. If you're not getting the Daily Obits email and you would like to check it out, there's an easy fix. Go to telegraphherald.com slash newsletter and hit the subscribe button on the Daily Obituaries email. While you're there, check out our other email newsletter and try some out. If you aren't already getting the afternoon update, that's a good one to 
subscribe to. Each afternoon at 4, an email goes out with all the news stories we have posted on our website since the print edition came out in the morning. And we highlight a few key stories from that day's paper, including what has been most read. That's a good way to catch up on the news of the day in a quick read delivered right to your inbox. If you're a regular user of our website, you can also just look for the blue envelope in the top right corner and click to find the sign-up page. I welcome your feedback on this new feature. Then, elections, elections, elections. Maybe it feels to you like this isn't really election season, but here in the world of community journalism, we are tracking elections. On three out of the next four Tuesdays, as a matter of fact. Today, three people are vying for a seat on the Piasta City Council. Piasta residents looking for insight can find our profiles at https colon double slash tiny url dot com. A week later, Grant County, Wisconsin voters will narrow the field of candidates running for a local circuit court judge seat. Candidates will appear on the February 21st primary ballot with the top two vote-getters facing off in the April election. They are running to replace Circuit Court Judge Robert Vandehe, who announced last year that he would not seek another term. Then, on March 7th, Bellevue, Iowa voters will have the chance to vote on a school bond referendum. Voters will be asked to approve a $13.1 million bond measure to help fund the construction of an elementary school. The measure must be approved by 60% of voters to pass. Get bit by the travel bug. The lineup of Telegraph Herald trips this year is pretty amazing. We have plans in the works to host trips to New Orleans and Cajun country this spring, followed by Venice and the Italian lakes. I mean, can you imagine? In late May. Summer brings trips to the breathtaking Canadian Rockies and Glacier National Park, as well as coastal New England. Lobster roll, anyone? The fall international trip is a tour of the treasures of Ireland, and that one is already filling up fast. I have been on two trips with Premier World Discovery, the company that leads our tours, and they both have been fantastic with top-notch accommodations. Premier comes up with itineraries that hit all the highlights and take all of the hassle out of coordinating things yourself. This is a low-stress, adventurous travel. You are listening to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Tuesday, February 14, 2023 on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Elaine L. Wyke. Elaine L. Wyke, 92, of Dubuque, passed away on Saturday, February 11, 2023, with her family by her side. Friends and family may visit from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, February 16, 2023, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. A funeral service will begin at 5 p.m. on Thursday at the funeral home with Pastor Peter Nugent officiating. Anne M. Tierney Anne M. O'Shea Tierney, 80, of Dubuque, Iowa, passed away on February 12, 2023. Private family services will be held. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Anne was born on January 23, 1943, in Dubuque, Iowa, daughter of Michael and Emma Bakey O'Shea. Lisa Schwarty, West Des Moines, Iowa. Lisa Schwarty, 
52, of West Des Moines, passed away peacefully on Saturday, February 4, 2023, after a courageous battle with breast cancer. Lisa is survived by her loving husband, Jeff, her three children, Alex, Megan, and Zachary, her parents, Robert and Leora Bonnert, and brother, Mike Bonnert. She was preceded in death by her paternal grandparents, Anthony and Anastasia Bonnert, and maternal grandparents, Camillus and Viola Myers. Services were held on February 10th and February 11th, 2023. Mary J. Lang, East Dubuque, Illinois. Mary J. Lang, 91, of East Dubuque, died on Sunday, February 12th, 2023. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, at Miller Funeral Home in East Dubuque. A massive Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 18th, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Dubuque. Burial will be in East Dubuque Cemetery. Janan M. Hancock. Janan M. Hancock, 90, of Dubuque, died on Saturday, February 11th, 2023. Visitation will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, February 19th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. A massive Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 20th at St. Columkill Catholic Church. Jerry Lindauer. Manchester, Iowa. Jerry Lindauer, 79, of Manchester, died on Saturday, February 11, 2023. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 15th, with a scripture service at 3.30 p.m. at Bonenkamp Murdoch Funeral Home in Manchester. Burial will be at a later date. And funeral services? Pamela M. Bennett, Dubuque. Celebration of Life, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. today, Pizza Ranch, 2020 Radford Road. Lonnie E. Burns, Jr., Dubuque. Visitation, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. today, Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. Celebration of Life, 1 p.m. today at the Funeral Home. Jacqueline R. Entringer, Dubuque. Visitation, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Friday, February 17th, Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, Service 1 p.m. Friday at the funeral home. Barbara J. Furlong, Dubuque. Celebration of Life, 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, March 26th. Village Cooperative of Asbury, Iowa Community Room. Clark E. Girlmund, Elizabeth, Illinois. Visitation 10 to 11 a.m. Thursday, February 16th at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Elizabeth. Massive Remembrance, 11 a.m. Thursday at the church. Carlotta M. Harder, Manchester, Iowa. Visitation 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 18th, Our Savior Lutheran Church, Manchester. Service 11 a.m. Saturday at the church. Donald Lahr, Manchester, Iowa. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, Bonenkamp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Manchester. Wake service, 9 to 10.15 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at St. Mary Catholic Church, Manchester. Massive Christian burial, 10.30 a.m. Saturday at the church. Maynard L. McVeigh, Dubuque. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Massive Christian burial, 10 a.m. Saturday, February 18th, Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Albert J. Roth, Dubuque, 
Celebration of Life, noon to 1.30 p.m. Friday, February 17th, Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Velda M. Schoenfeld, Galena, Illinois. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. today, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena. Service, 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 15th, at the Funeral Home. And Jessica K. Tyson, Phoenix. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, St. Joseph's Catholic Church, Bellevue, Iowa. Service, 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February 18th, at the church. Turning to the sports page in Boys Press Prep Basketball, Bellevue Aces Opener by Danny Miller. Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. It's a slightly different mindset for the Bellevue Comets this postseason as opposed to last year, but one that Hunter Putman and his teammates fully embrace. This year, we have a lot of potential to go all the way to the state championship, Putman said. If we play together as a team, we can get to where we want to be. Last season, the Comets somewhat surprisingly got hot at just the right team and qualified for the state tournament for the first time in 31 years. This year, after spending much of the season ranked in the Class 1A polls, Bellevue expects to make a return trip to Wells Fargo Arena. That would be our dream to go back-to-back, Putnam said. We would make history if we could do that. So far, so good for the Comets as they completely overmatched visiting Springville, 82-28 in a 1A substate 4 District 8 quarterfinal on Monday at Bellevue High School. Putman was electric from the field, netting 19 of his game-high 22 points in the first half for Bellevue. Robert Paulson added 13, Jensen Wedeking had 12, and Cameron Castle contributed 10 for the Comets, who saw 10 players reach the scorer's book. Bellevue will host Clinton Prince of Peace on Thursday at 7 p.m. Cade Shada had 11 points to lead Springville, which bowed out at 4 and 18. Wedeking and Paulson scored 13 of Bellevue's first 15 points to jump to a 15-4 advantage, Paulson's steal and one-handed slam midway through the first encapsulated an entirely dominant opening eight minutes on both ends of the floor. We wanted to try and pressure them right away, Bellevue coach Chet Kanaki said. It's been a while since we've tried to press like that. Our guys did a nice job of setting the tempo. We wanted to try and throw a knock-out punch right away, and we did a great job of doing that. Bellevue's swarming pressure defense overwhelmed the Orioles, forcing 12 first-quarter turnovers and 18 total in the first half. In addition, the Comets were shot efficiently from on offense, highlighted by a 5-of-8 effort from the three-point line. Our defense is what controls our game, Putman said. We are a defensive team, not an offensive one. When we create turnovers, that's when we go on runs. Bellevue jolted to a commanding 32-6 lead after one quarter and used a 9-0 run behind three consecutive points off steals from Putman and Castle to make it 41-6 early in the second. The Comets left little suspense to the game's outcome, leading 53-16 at the break. Kanaki feels it's an added bonus to have several players on the roster who experienced the rigors of a postseason run last year. Our guys have confidence, 
I think we're in the right state of mind, Kanaki said. It helps having that experience, but it still comes down to execution, and I think our guys are ready. And being in an underdog role in nearly every playoff game last year provoked Bellevue to keep its foot on the gas early and often Monday. We were that team last year, Kanaki said. The last thing we wanted to do was give Springville any confidence right away. To keep our guys from getting flat, we wanted to keep the pressure on and keep moving up and down. The next story is titled Mohawks Dominant in Postseason Debut by Tom Gregory, Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. Forget second quarter. After eight minutes of play on Monday, it was time to start thinking about the second round. Bellevue Marquette's near-flawless first quarter set the stage for a 76-31 stomping of North Cedar in an Iowa Class 1A boys basketball playoff opener at Marquette High School. Spencer Roeder led the attack for Marquette, which improved to 20-3 with 22 points. Cannon Still scored 19 and Caden Ketman 11 for Marquette. Hunter Lohman had nine, and Jaden Nabb chipped in seven for North Cedar, which closed three and 19. I give North Cedar credit. They battled, Marquette coach Isaac Sturm said. We weren't about to take them lightly. We haven't gotten a district win in a while. Finally, we got one. It feels good to be moving on. Marquette's first two baskets, and four of its first five, came from beyond the arc. Roeder contributed three of the three-pointers, including consecutive makes that put Marquette up 14-4 to and forced a timeout from North Cedar. That didn't help the Knights. Nothing much could because of the way Marquette was playing. North Cedar struggled against Marquette's full-court press. The Knights coughed up seven turnovers in the opening period. Marquette, meanwhile, made 10 straight field goals at one point and went 11 for 14 from the field in the opening period to grab a commanding 27-5 to lead. We came ready, Roeder said. Our defense created some good looks, and we were hitting their shots. Marquette cooled a bit, missing eight straight field goals to start the second period and going scoreless until more than three minutes had passed. But that didn't make things any better for North Cedar. The Knights scored four straight to open the frame, but continued to struggle getting the ball past half-court, committing ten more turnovers in the second, more than half of them coming against the menacing Marquette press and yielding quick buckets for the Tri-Rivers East champions. And Marquette's shooters didn't stay cold for long. The six-foot-five rotor buried two more pointers, two more three-pointers in the second. His length helped Marquette dominate on defense as well. Roeder and Still, Marquette's five foot six junior point guard, accounted for 16 consecutive points during a stretch in which the pair also combined for five steals as Marquette went into halftime, up 53 to 13. We wanted to play fast, Still said. The full court press worked great. We started out with it, and if it works, we stick with it. It led to some good shots, and guys were hitting. Turning to girls' prep bowling, Dubuque Area Bowlers Punch Tickets to State Meet by Jim Leitner. The Dubuque Senior Girls' Bowling Team saved its best for last on Monday afternoon, and it resulted in a berth in the Iowa State Tournament. In the 15th and final game of the Baker Series, the Rams bagged a 228, the high game in the eight-team event, to finish second with a 2,762 
at the Class 3A qualifying tournament hosted by Marshalltown at Wayward Social. Senior rallied in the final game to beat Linmar by 49 pins after the Lions closed with a 166. Waterloo West won the team title at 2,816. Only the top two teams advanced to the team tournament February 22nd at Cadillac XBC in Waterloo. We actually thought we were in second no matter what going into the last game and that we were competing with Cedar Falls for that spot, said Mackenzie Lang, who later won the individual title. We didn't realize that Linmar passed them. It's probably better that we didn't know. For a few seconds, we had a few doubts, but we didn't let that get to us. We hit a bit of a rough patch in the game before that, but we worked really well together in that last game, and we did a great job in that last game of picking each other up. Senior coach Peggy Leibfried said a better idea of where the Rams stood after 14 games. She didn't want to put too much pressure on the group. They wanted to go out big, and they went 100%. Liebfried said, every single game, they regrouped and shared information on what they were doing well and what they weren't doing well. They made a few adjustments and consistently hit the pocket. I'm speechless. I always tell them not to look up at the scores and don't look to your left or right to see what other teams are doing. Just keep your head forward. They know their potential and they definitely bowled to their potential today. The Rams followed up the team win by qualifying four bowlers to the individual state tournament next Monday at Maple Lanes in Waterloo. Lang shot a national honor count 227, 245, and 207 for a 679 for a 25-pin victory over Waterloo West, Sidney Wilson. The Rams' Clara Pregler shot a national honor count 205, 215, 189 for a 609 to finish fifth, while Jacqueline Hochrein rolled a 210, 200, and 175 for 585 for seventh, and Morgan Betcher a 164, a 193, and a 225 for a total of 582 for the eighth and final individual spot at state. Having my team there, especially Jacqueline, helped me so much to lift me up the entire time, Lang said of her series, which easily set a career high. Having my dad there, too, and my coaches helped a lot, too. They got me through it, and I did what I needed to do. I've been putting in a lot of time lately and tried some new things, and today the ball felt really good off my hand. Seniors lineup also included Maddie Arrington and Allison Hedrick. Hempstead's Leach Nineman advanced to state. Hempstead senior Libby Leach shot a national honor count 210, 224, and 200 for 634 to finish second at the Class 3A qualifying event hosted by Cedar Rapids Prairie at Lancer Lanes. Cedar Rapids Kennedy's Kaylee Harris won the individual title with a 256, uh, 192, and a 205 for 653. It's such a good feeling to be going back to state, considering I'm a senior and this is the last chance I'll have, Leach said. I knew I'd have to shoot 600 to get to the top eight, and it was huge mentally to be able to make all my spares and adjust to how the lanes were breaking down. Bowling bakers first helped a lot. You had to make a lot of adjustments, and you learned a lot how the lanes were breaking down, so you had a better idea what ball to use in certain situations in individuals. The Mustangs also advanced junior Madison Nineman to state. 
She rolled a 207, 232, and 147 for 5.86 to finish 7th. The top 8 bowlers advanced to the individual tournament. Cedar Rapids Jefferson won the team title with a 2,718, while Prairie took 2nd at 2,671. Hempstead finished 4th with uh, a 2,307. Nyan Bobcats make Class 2A state tournament field. Western Dubuque Junior, Junior Bailey Nyan finished second individually, and the Bobcats also placed second in the team competition to advance both to, to state from the Class 2A qualifier at Cadillac XBC in Waterloo. Nyan bagged a 212, 179, and 201 for 592 to finish just seven pins back of Decorah's Rebecca Bruning. The Vikings also took the team title with 2,458, 107 clear of Western Dubuque. The Bobcats lineup also included Claire McCrane, Addie Cress, Olivia Thule, Kirsten Butcher, and Megan Vasky, along with sub Allie Steger. It's a really good feeling, especially since this is the third year in a row we made it, Nyan said. We did a really good job of getting each other hyped up, and that got everybody's emotions going. When we're more excited to bowl, we always seem to bowl better. I'm happy that I get to go in both. I didn't do as well as I would have liked individually last year, so it's nice to have another chance to go back. The Class 2A team competition takes place next Tuesday, and the individual event follows next Wednesday. Wallert second in Class 1A tourney in Comanche. Top-seeded Comanche rolled at 2,962 to easily win the Class 1A qualifying meet it hosted at Imperial Lings, while second-seeded Dubuque Wallert shot a 2,341 for second place, and Bellevue took fifth at 1,709. The Storm also claimed all four individual spots, led by Kylie Coy with the 697. Wallert's Caitlin Vason finished sixth with a 546, 31 pins shy of fourth place, and Kenna Wolbers took eighth with a 503. In Class 1A, only the team champion and the top four individuals advanced to the state meet. Class 1A has eight qualifying sites, while the two larger classes have four apiece. The Class 1A state team tournament takes place Monday, and the individual event follows next Tuesday. Makokita sends quartet and team to state. Makokita swept the four individual qualifying spots and won the team title at the Class 1A qualifier at Legacy Lanes in Monticello. Hadley Erig won the individual title with a 237, 156, and 225 for 629 to edge teammate Chloe Fauci, who had 231, 159, and 225 for a 615. Alyssa Keys played third, placed third at 240 and 170 and 190 for 600, and Allie Simmons took fourth with a 204, a 190, a 188 for 582. The Cardinals rolled a 2,800 for the sixth seed at state. And West Delaware cruises to title. West Delaware fired a 2,775 to easily outdistance runner-up Charles City, 2,282, and win the Class 1A state qualifying meet hosted by Waterloo-Columbus at Cadillac XBC. 
The Hawks also advanced Lydia Helms, who finished second with a national honor count of 258, 172, 209 for 639. Forest City's Callie Johnson won the individual title with a 661. Former Wallert coach leads Grundy Center to national honor by Jim Leitner. A former Dubuque Wallert coach guided the top high school football team in the country for excellence in the classroom, on the field, and in the community. The National Football Foundation and College Football Hall of Fame last week named Grundy Center High School as the recipient of its prestigious Hatchell Cup. The award comes with a $10,000 donation from Bob Stake and Chop House. Led by head coach Travis Zajac, the Spartans finished 13-0 and and won the Iowa Class A state championship while posting an impressive 3.69 grade point average. Grundy Center finished as the state runner-up in 2019, 2020, and 2021. The NFF is proud to present the Hatchell Cup to Grundy Center, NFF Chairman Archie Manning said in a press release. All of the school's players, coaches, administrators, and their families should be incredibly proud of the team's accomplishments. We hope by inspiring teams to compete in the classroom with the same competitive spirit that it takes to win on the field, we will better prepare high school football players for success later in life. Grundy Center emerged from a field of 60 state winners of the 2022-23 NFF National High School Academic Excellence Awards at various divisions of play. The individual state high school coaches associations selected their nominees from recommendations submitted by each school's head coach. A national selection committee assembled and overseen by the NFF selected the winner of the Hatchell Cup. The official presentation of the trophy will take place at a time and place to be determined this spring. Of the 43 players on the Grundy Center roster this fall, 40 made the honor roll and 14 earned a perfect 4.0 GPA and another 14 players exceeded 3.7 during the school's first trimester this year. The team placed 22 players on the Class A District 3 Academic First Team and four seniors made the Iowa Football Coaches Association Academic All-State Team. On the field, five players earned first-team All-State honors, seven made first-team All-Class A, District 3, and six more made the second team. The 2022 championship marked the school's first title in 34 years and fourth in school history. The team completed more than 250 hours of community service, including assisting at Kiwanis Club community breakfasts, the town festival, a preschool renovation project, a community garage sale, officiating at YSF flag football games, and setting up the Wall That Heals, a traveling Vietnam War memorial. Numerous members of the team participate in band, choir, and school musicals. While 24 of the 26 upperclassmen played at least one other sport, including several three- and four-sport athletes, the team featured seven sets of brothers. Mm-hmm.